episode of fish bites it's eli sussman fish stripes managing editor addressing you as the miami marlins are flying into philadelphia to get their 2020 mlb regular season underway i wasn't sure whether baseball would get here in the first place who knows if we'll be able to get to the finish line but every day recently has been that little step forward that brings a sense of relief a lot to analyze and a lot to debate with regards to the marlins and that's kept our days busy, it's kept our minds racing, and there's a lot to break down. To help me do that properly, we have my former Fish Stripe staffer, a good friend, most popular Fish Bites host we've ever had, and definitely one of the world's leading experts on all things Marlins, it's Danny Martinez. Are you ready to play ball, sir? I am ready to play ball. That's one heck of an introduction that I have to live up to, but but it's definitely, uh, definitely nice to be back here with you, Eli, and just like I said, have a conversation with you and then also play ball and let's talk some fish baseball. We still get people on the main website who aren't on Twitter that are constantly asking about you and want to get your takes on things. And I tell them, you know, just find you on Twitter. You're still there and you're still like staying on top of absolutely everything. And you're a great person to bounce ideas off of. And we're, I guess for transparency, we're checking in right now, right before the second exhibition game in Atlanta. By the time people will listen to this, the game will be over and the team will be in Philly. And um, I guess just off the top, uh, just a general uh, feeling that you get actually watching this team on TV for the first time in, what, four and a half months. I think I speak for both of us that from being like on Twitter during the game yesterday, the kind of conversations and the kind of engagement on there um, and the intensity of emotions, the swing of emotions during that game for a game that didn't count that was that kind of exceeded my expectations agreed there was a lot of passion on the timeline yesterday for an exhibition game uh and and i think part of that right eli is that people are just starving for sports and starving for baseball in general but it's still the marlins and it's still an exhibition game for people to be as excited as they were you know inning one through seven and then as angry as they were in that one inning with conley it shows you again that there is some foundation of a fan base here that's interested in, in baseball and that the organization just has to give them something to be passionate about. So it was great. It was great to have live baseball and it was great to see the fan base excited. And I mean, we, there's only so much we could take away from these exhibition games themselves, of course, because they don't count. You know, it's the same approach you would take for a spring training game, although it feels a little bit more relevant because we're so close to the regular season it has been a pretty good preview of the players that will actually be on the opening day roster and have certain roles and what we've seen with these two games is what seems to be a pretty uh, top to bottom good preview of what the opening day lineup is going to look like and they were slightly different lineups for the first game versus the second game before we get into that uh, it was only a couple of days prior to that that you mentioned an ideal opening day lineup from your perspective, what you think would have been the best way for the team to approach the season. And that's what it, what I wanted to go through with you, an opportunity to weigh in on a lot of different players. Um, I'm, I'm just going to read it for the people that didn't see it when you posted originally. Your, your ideal opening day lineup from a few days ago, 
had Jonathan VR leading off as the DH, Isan Diaz batting second and playing second, Brian Anderson at third, playing third, Corey Dickerson in left, Jesus Aguilar at first base, Jorge Alfaro at catcher, Cooper or Harold Ramirez in right field, Miguel Rojas at shortstop, and Monte Harrison in center field batting ninth. And so we know at this point that that's probably not going to happen at the very start of the year. Uh, but as we go through that, I, I'd like to get your takes on why you feel so strongly about that alignment. And I guess the, the VR in the leadoff spot is one that pretty much everybody agrees on and understands based on his track record, especially what he did last year. But starting, I guess, with someone like Isan Diaz, um, we saw his rookie year. Uh, before that, we saw his amazing year at AAA. And then after getting called up and seeing a lot of regression from that, uh, but why would you feel it's the most appropriate to have him uh, like near the top of the lineup from the very beginning of this year? So Ethan hitting in the second hole is obviously the most controversial thing about this lineup, right? Aside from Montaigne, you know, we could talk about service time and whether this is realistic in six days or whatever the case is. Ethan hitting second is the one that would never allow this lineup to actually happen coming out of Donnie baseball. And my reasoning for it is also controversial. Uh, I know I don't have a lot of supporters when it comes to two elements of lineup construction. One, I guess I'm a little traditionalist in the sense that I do believe it matters who's hitting in front and behind you. I do believe just the psyche of a pitcher, how they're going to attack you, the risk reward is a better way of saying it, of how they're going to attack you changes, depending if you have Brian Anderson behind you versus if you have, with no disrespect to anybody else, a Miguel Rojas behind your Magnera Sierra. I will not buy, regardless of the data, that the pitcher feels the same way. So that's the first controversial part and why I have Ethan with a little bit more protection in the lineup. And then the second one is where I guess I'm not a traditionalist. So the traditionalist would say the prospect needs to earn their way up the top of the order. The prospect needs to be hitting eighth or ninth or seventh and then earn their way. I also disagree with that. I think you place the prospects where you're going to ideally place them um, in their prime or right before their prime or where they're going to hold most value. And then you allow some sink or swim, basically the opposite of what eventually ended up happening with Louis Brinson. So that's where I place Isan, and that's why I place them in the two hole. Here's Isan Diaz, and he's done it again. A fly ball, well hit right field. That'll clear the pool. Diaz has homered now five consecutive games. And as you referenced, pretty much all these other picks are uh, pretty uh, defensible, pretty standard, and pretty similar to what we imagine is going to be at, at opening day. Obviously, with Brian Anderson, what he showed last year, the track record that Dickerson and Aguilar have, and then Alfaro being the primary catcher, and Rojas eighth. The other one that uh, doesn't seem like it's going to go through with the Marlins insisting that, well, now stating that Monte is not going to be on the opening day roster, um, but I think a lot of us were surprised that he wasn't included there. Um, and even if he was, it was a little unclear exactly what his his playing time status was going to be, even if he was on the active roster. But uh, I'm, I'm wondering how, at what level is your dissatisfaction with that decision on a scale of one to 10 um, with, with one being you, you understand to respect the process and his fit will come later in the year to 10 uh, being outraged. Where, where are you in terms of agreeing or disagreeing with how the Marlins handled that? 
Yeah, so the answer to that is going to include a blind spot because I had a true blind spot on how long his service time was needed. Um, when I put out this ideal lineup, I, I can be honest, I had not considered that only six days were left to get a whole nother year of control. So quite frankly, you're not going to get like the revolutionist hurrah anger here because now that I understand it's six days, I'm not sure my anger is even like at a two or a three. Now, that's different than my anger with the system. I think that the service time manipulation needs to be fixed at a systemic level. I think that baseball has to do better at um, giving a little bit more power to the player. But, oh, my, in rebuilding year three, if it's only going to cost you six days for a whole year, I'm not sure that I could validate, even with not liking the system, the Marlins doing that, especially when we talk about the competition they're not exactly the Dodgers. They're not exactly really competing entirely this year. So I would place it at I would place that at a two or three if I'm being honest, and I know I'll get heat there, but I can't give up a whole year of Monte and the value that comes with that for just six days. Do you feel like you personally are are ready to play every day in the big leagues right now? Maybe I can ask it like that. One hundred percent. I feel I prepared myself mentally and physically to be in the big leagues. Uh, Watch other people. Experience this with other people that's been in the big leagues. Uh, just watching and learning. Uh, I think I'm ready for the big leagues. I don't. I, actually, I don't think I'm ready. I know I'm ready. Well, this is where I push back on you a little bit because my my intensity is quite a bit higher in that area. Not not at a ten, but pretty high. You know, seven eight is uh, well one because of Monte's age, being the fact that he's about to turn 25 years old. So the service time they're trying to do. Is already in his early 30s. And I mean, players, we, we do see some of the best players in their game in their early 30s. Most are not, though. It is possible to already be declining by that age. It's possible that extra year will not be as valuable in his case as it would be with a lot of conventional top prospects. I guess my bigger area of disagreement is that, of course, the active roster in this new setup for 2020 is larger at the start of the season than it is later on. They have 30 spots right now. And they don't have a minor league system set up either. So with him not being on the major league roster, the development that he's going to get outside of playing in the majors is going to be pretty minimal. I mean, he's going to be around their other top prospects in Jupiter, but the concerns that Mattingly cited, for example, or that we just didn't have a role for him to play every single day. Yeah. Well, well, no, there are really no other opportunities for him to play every single day in real competition without minor league baseball going on. And that lack of having that viable alternative is a hangup for me, but more so the fact that you don't have to start someone in the minor leagues in order to prevent them from getting a full year of service, right? It could have been a situation where he impressed during summer camp. Um, they do have some outfield depth questions with Lewis Brinson and Matt Joyce expected to be on the IL to start the year that there was some playing time available, despite how Mattingly tried to phrase it. He would have been playing inconsistently, but he would have been playing somewhat. And the roster is going to be smaller later in the year. It's only a couple weeks into the season that they downsize from 30 spots to 28. So if Monte, unfortunately, were to get off to a really slow start at the plate where he's striking out half of his plate appearances, and it's clear that something needs to be fine-tuned, if not mechanically, then just psychologically. Um, And if he is actually hurting the team, 
in a year where you're, you're hoping they can flirt with being a competitive team out of the shoot, then it's simple to just send him down once roster sizes shrink. They shrink a couple spots after two weeks, a couple more spots after the first month of the year. It'd be so easy to option him at that point, and it serves the same purpose of adding more service time while also you know helping the team. So I, that's, that's a lot of disorganized points I brought up there, but I hope you see where I'm getting at where uh, they, for someone that there was so much positive attention around him at this point due to his performance and due to the way that he impacts his teammates and coaches uh, in intangible ways that it's, I mean, it's not only a big uh, PR hit for them to leave him off at this point of the year, but I feel it wasn't totally necessary. If you see where I'm coming from, that they could have had him on and made a tough decision later on. Uh, yeah. I, I don't think it was unorganized points at all. It was good points. Um, I, I think I, I kind of laugh, not at your point. I laugh when Donnie says, Oh, for development or for more consistent at bats." same way that, you, without laughing, very kindly pointed it out. What what development are you going to get down there that you wouldn't be able to get up here? If they really do make it obvious and they call them up within a week that it was about service time, what development are you really getting in a week's time? I, I you know, uh, Joe Fasaro came out and said, oh, what about the strikes, uh, the strikeouts? You know, I don't I don't post every strikeout. I post only the home run, so that's what the fans see. I don't know if there's truth to that or not. I, I agree with all of your points. I do, and then I just simply come back for a second and I say, even in a worst case scenario where then this is someone that's traded later, or even in a worst case scenario when we are looking into a different window, I'm not sure the six days is worth it, but that's where your counter comes into play. If he earned it, and I wasn't there, I I, I didn't see all of his camp in person, of course. If he earned it, he could be there. And if he struggles, you'd still be able to keep that year. Um, So that's a good point. That's a good point, Eli. I'm not sure what they say behind closed doors. I just, I'm not believing that it's about development or even that it's about the case. I just think it's about that extra year. Yeah. Well, either way, it's highly, highly likely that we do see him at some point during the season. And now just to do a quick contrast between, of course, your ideal lineup and the one that the Marlins have actually put out there. The first game against the Braves, it was in order VR, Anderson, Dickerson, Aguilar, Cooper, Harold, Isan, Alfaro, and Rojas. And now as we're heading into the second exhibition game, they've made a slightly surprising mix-up to that, where it's still VR at the top, but then Aguilar batting second, Dickerson, Harold batting cleanup, then Brian Anderson, Isan, Alfaro, Rojas, and Birdie. So they put Birdie in center field and have VR DHing. Um Do you feel strongly either way about that, where the second lineup is playing birdie in place of Cooper and also getting birdie's defense in place of VR's, whereas uh, the first night it was having both Cooper and VR in there and having birdie available off the bench. Of those two, if you were to make an educated guess about which of those we actually see on Friday against the Phillies, you think it's the Cooper lineup or the birdie lineup? I think it's the Cooper lineup. I think that the first lineup we saw uh, against the Braves in the first game is going to mirror what we see on Friday and likely that the core of that lineup is going to be the most consistent throughout the year, um, at least consistently used. One wrinkle that I think is important here, and actually I'll, I'll get to that wrinkle in a second. I'll say something about Birdie. Birdie's like the lost person. Most fans do not include him in, in their lineup projections. 
I know I don't. I fail to do that. I think he's going to have more of an intricate part in this year than most fans realize. Uh, but to get to my wrinkle, I think, and I'm sure that Donnie would be like, no, Danny, that's not what I did at all. But I think it's curious that he me- he messed it or mixed it up for the second game. And I wonder if it's just because some of the younger prospects are going to be playing a little bit longer in this game. Like, I wouldn't be entirely surprised if some of the position players are out and then we see a Lewin Diaz come in or, um, again, Amante come in or whomever the case might be into that spot. Now, that is me overthinking things. I'm sure the Marlins didn't actually do that. But it's one of the first things that I thought of when I saw it, like, hmm, I would like to see Lewin Diaz at first base, but hitting in the two-hole. Uh, it would be interesting to see Monte stack up X, Y, and Z. So I, I don't know what the what the fun is behind Aguiar batting second and switching it up. But if I was a betting man, I would say what we really saw was last night's game uh, be the real dress rehearsal for how Donnie's going to print out that uh, exchange of cards that I guess isn't happening with COVID. But basically, that's the lineup I think I'm going with. Agreed. Totally agreed with you on that. As we're, it's going to be tomorrow, or slightly after we put out this pod, there's going to be an article on the site about a roundtable discussion with me and some of the other guys at Fish Stripes, just answering a couple general questions about the season, the Marlins in relation to other teams, as well as like key individuals on the team itself. So I'm going to have you an honorary entry into that roundtable, an, an audio only entry into that roundtable. We're going to go through the same sort of questions that. I have in that article, and we're going to have you um, go through them here. Most I told I told all the guys to give their answers very brief and don't overthink it. And so I, I give you the same prompt. You know, don't don't try to overthink it too much. But a couple other questions that we, we really I don't think I've spent too much time on just generally in speaking to the audience, speaking to the fan base over the past few months. I feel like um, th- these are still important questions, but ones that we haven't necessarily given quite enough focus on uh, when looking around the division with the Braves, the Mets, the Nationals, and the Phillies. I mean, understanding that we're not following their daily summer camp updates as much as other people. Um, of those teams, could you put them in like a little power rankings for me? Which of those teams do you think is best built to actually be a legit World Series contender this year? versus the ones that you could actually see the Marlins surpassing and actually leapfrog potentially at the bottom of the division. Who's, who are you most afraid of in that situation? So I, have a, I have a clear bottom and I have a clear top, so I'll start with the clear bottom. I'm not, I'm not afraid of the Mets. I understand that the Mets have one of the strongest lineups they've had in a while, but losing Thor and that rotation just doesn't impose any fear on me. I could totally eat my words. The Mets are this team that will have a miracle year and their offense will carry them but I would have them fourth. <laughs> and if the Marlins actually do better than we're expecting, possibly even fifth, then it's between the Phillies and the Nats for me, which tells you that I'm going to have the Braves up top. Uh, I think the Braves are the first place, are the class of this division. They are the rebuild that we have modeled ourselves after, and they are the most balanced team. They have the offensive pop, they have <laughs> on-base strength, and they have a solid staff that I think in a sprint over 60 games will lead them to first. So I say Atlanta at first, some toss-ups between the Phillies and the Nats second, third, and then the Mets either in fourth or in fifth. All right. All right. Like, like I said, don't overthink it that much. I think uh, that, that makes a lot of sense. 
from based on what we know now. And of course, understanding how unpredictable things can change based on what COVID decides to do in this situation. Um, but the next up, looking inside the Marlins organization, we know that Monte won't be on the opening day roster, but he's next up. And we've seen some other interesting pitching prospects get a lot of usage during summer camp and even brought along to the exhibition games in Atlanta. When the season is said and done, which Marlins rookie do you think is going to have the biggest impact on this season? It could be, you know, a conventional prospect or it could be like last year where they get sneaky contributions from, from like John Birdie and Harold Ramirez. But which individual player are you most optimistic about getting a lot of playing time and being pretty successful right out of the gate? I would love Lewin Diaz to be the answer, but I actually believe we are in line for a Jesus Aguiar resurrection, which will keep Lewin at bay. So I would like Lewin Diaz to be the answer, but I don't think it would be. The obvious answer for me is going to be Monte. I think Monte gets called up relatively early in the season. Uh, and we're going to see. We're going to see the pop from him. We're going to see the speed from him. We're going to see the solid glove from him. If he makes enough contact, that's an easy choice for me. I'm going to flip it around and say Alex Vessia. I think he is going to make his debut this year, maybe even early enough, although I'm not sure that they'll start him off right away. But when he does, I think we're going to see a lefty that knows how to control the strike zone, has overpowering stuff to put people away, has enough control to harness it, uh, and just seems like it's a fun decision or a fun choice to go bullpen, especially when we have all the massive prospects that we think are coming up. So I'm going to go with my guy, Alex, as the rookie that really makes a statement this year for the fish. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a Happy price. Got your happy price, price line. I feel very guilty about Vesia because it was uh, when he was heading on the plane from Miami to Atlanta, I just sent him a quick message just saying, good luck, enjoy it this season, congrats on making it this far. And first game in Atlanta, of course, he, he gives up the walk-off home run, and it's the first mm-hmm. run that he's allowed in any appearance in any professional game in a full year. He had that scoreless streak that dated all the way back to the middle of last summer. And like the one time where I, I just send him some words of encouragement, he ends up, you know, being the the goat in this situation and actually, you know, allowing the Braves to come all the way back. It was just that one swing, you know, otherwise his outing was fine. And people that watch the game know that it was other relievers that were guilty of it. But it, so as long as he can bounce back from that, and I'm, I'm sure he can, that uh, I think that's a pretty good choice. And he's someone that doesn't necessarily jump off the page in terms of his his raw tools, but just the performance that he's had, the way that his pitches work off of one another and the work ethic he has. Yeah, he's he profiles pretty well as being that back of an end of a bullpen guy. Moving up the experience ladder, we're just going to focus on Marlins players that were in the major leagues last year, returning Marlins players from 2019 uh, you've already mentioned Isan. We talked about him briefly early on. He would count in this category. Um, just any of the guys that have returned from last year, who is your pick, do you think, that will be the most improved player on this team among guys that we already saw last year? 
Yeah, I'm going to go with Alfaro. I think that the James Robson effect here, the, uh, you know, the do damage, the be aggressive, fits really nicely with the pop and, quite frankly, with what seems to be his mindset at the plate of Alfaro. I'm not going to pretend to know what, what Alfaro and Ralston have spoken about or have been trying to develop in their private, uh, you know, meetings and training. But I would imagine that if there's someone who can truly, truly take a next step, specifically because of Ralston and his ability to get in a player's head or in a hitter's head and develop a game plan together, it's going to be Alfie behind, behind the plate. So that's, that's definitely my choice with the understanding that Isan would be a sexy choice to pick here as well, but going to go with Alfaro. I believe I'm the only one when this article comes out that went with Pablo Lopez, considering last year was kind of a step back from him from his rookie season. Um, but being fully healthy right now, he's adding a cutter to his pitch mix and understanding that he was somewhat unlucky with the results that he got last year. That's going to be my guy. That's my guy that... That's a good one. That's a good yeah. one. I mean, frankly, he was mediocre in his appearances last year, but uh, I think people that were paying close attention know a lot of that was that one disaster game, that one disaster ending, I think, against the Mets, where they left him in and got pounded and pounded. And he said a lot of time to rethink things, to uh, re-harness his ability and to actually make some tangible adjustments. So I, I look forward to seeing him and what he could do this year. Um, you already, There's a little bit of overlap right here because you recently appeared on one of our favorite pods fish across the pond and you finished up that episode by making a record prediction for the marlins this year but i know you danny and i know that you can be um you can be as we get close to the season that optimism keeps building and building and building inside of you you, you told fish across the pond you told peter um, that most likely Marlins record prediction from you would be like 26 and 34, 27 and 33. Um, are you a, a couple of days later, are you still standing by that as <laughs> most likely record prediction or do you have a slight change to that? So you know me well, okay. You know, my optimism radar gets a little bit higher as we get closer, but no, I'm still sticking to it. I think, I think the strength of schedule is just too much going against the AL East and the NL East, it's just too much. And again, this will be a little overlap, but it's, it's worth noting. I also truly do believe that with the roster that has been constructed for this year, with the Dickerson and the Aguiar and the added bats and the VR, I really do believe if you gave us a different strength of schedule, which of course is unrealistic in COVID times, I would be much more optimistic of saying 500 or better baseball. I, I, it's a competent roster. I truly believe that. But no level of Danny optimism is going to take me away from the fact that we are going up against the Rays and the Yankees and the entire NL East. And yes, the depleted Boston Red Sox, but it's still, I believe, either the worst or the second worst strength of schedule in baseball. So I'm sticking with my 27 or 26 wins, and I will be very happy for anything that goes above that. And quite frankly, if it's significantly below that, then go give me one of those stud pitchers in the draft next year, and I'll be happy there too. But, yep, going to stick with 26 and 27 on this one, Eli. Well, that was going to be my quick follow-up to this. Is there any scenario where you would find yourself disappointed with what happens that season, seeing that the downside to it, you know, if they are a terrible team, um, uh, hurt by inexperience, hurt by their strength of schedule, that they get one of those aforementioned high draft picks this coming year, that'd be a nice consolation prize to get from that. 
is there any scenario that you would consider this season a failure? Is there anything that would happen? Um, is there any on the field? Uh, let's just stick with on the field because we obviously can't control anything, any scandal, any controversy. We can't anticipate that off the field. But is there any situation that would leave you disappointed with this Marlins season that you can think of? Yeah, uh, we're still year three of a rebuild, right? This is still the time where you're supposed to be turning a corner. And to turn a corner, you need to be able to have your prospects and your younger talent begin to develop. Just is what it is. 2021 should be at least the beginning of kind of like cracking that open window of a competitive window. That doesn't happen or you don't have confidence going into 2021 if we do not see some developmental growth of an Isan Diaz, if we do not see some plateau or growth of a Sandy Alcantara or of a Pablo Lopez and the rest of the young talent that we've seen. Uh, in a 60-game season, anything can happen. In a 60-game season, win-loss record is very variable. But what shouldn't be forgiven is if our prospects and our young talent does not continue to develop. Uh, if not, then you're asking Sherman to open up the wallet. If not, you're looking elsewhere. Uh, if not, some of those trades begin to look poorly done instead of just adequate or better. So my answer is absolutely there's, there's a failure to this year, and it starts with the young talent if they don't develop the way we should in year three of a rebuild. We're with Danny Martinez here on Fish Bites, and we're going to get him out of here pretty soon. Uh, a couple more topics we're going to go through here uh, a couple of days prior to opening day for the Marlins. Wanted to do some transaction analysis, uh, and there's been a lot to analyze because the Marlins have made so many moves, almost a com- complete turnover, both at the major league level and with so much of the farm system over the last couple of years. I wanted to start off by getting what do you think, what is, in your opinion, the most successful move of any kind that you feel they've made since new ownership took over after the 2017 season, a a move that has yielded uh, some major league results, one that um, you see as being a great value in terms of what they gave up. Like what do you point to so far that really gives you confidence about this front office's ability to, to, to win, to win, whether it's trades or really efficient signings i guess you don't have to pick exactly one but what what do you think has worked out the most so far specific examples of what has worked out the most and uh, gives you confidence about the way that this team operates now if we had to choose just one move i actually think it's the ozuna move but i think it's a part of the ozuna move that i want to highlight here i want to highlight the fact that for whatever reason ironically enough this organization might be better at finding gems in trade than getting the right priority uh, centerpiece for a trade. And, and we see that with Zach Gallen coming back in that trade. No one knew who Zach Gallen was. Even the higher, you know, fan graphs types of places still had questions about Zach Gallen. And now Zach Gallen has obviously developed into what he developed into and then flipped for what I truly do believe is a superstar ceiling in a jazz chisholm which has its own doubts in his own right but still then we see that with nick anderson we see that with trevor richards identifying these gems and then being able to utilize that value to get a jesus sanchez to be able to even later on with getting sergio romo to come in get a lay diaz so i think it's the under the radar moves 
I've learned very quickly with this organization, you, you shouldn't just kind of turn your cheek to any of the small moves that you think are small. Because without Nick Anderson, we don't have Jesus Sanchez, uh, precise or possibly. So I think the biggest thing here is being able to highlight and scout and identify and acquire the gems. And on a similar note, I mean, one that you didn't mention, but I'm sure we've talked about it a lot before, is how they were able to, one of the very first moves they made after the ownership chains was a deal with the Yankees, trading away a little-known prospect named Michael King and getting both Caleb Smith and Garrett Cooper back in return, two guys that were um, totally expendable for the Yankees, that were being squeezed off of their 40-man roster, that the Marlins, that the Yankees at that point felt they were essentially giving away and how uh, both those guys have shown a lot of flashes of production. I mean, there was at one point, if 2019 was only a 60-game season, Caleb Smith would have been one of the better starters in the league. And there was also that same point in the middle of the 2019 season where Garrett Cooper was the hottest hitter in the Yankees lineup. And the sample sizes of both those guys are still really small. You know, they're both in their now in their late 20s. But when I see, like, those short bursts of excellence – from them, uh, that's something that me when when I'm analyzing players, if, if you've shown like that level of high high level performance, favorite home run this year, courtesy of Garrett Cooper, who oh, sends oh, oh, one oh, oh, deep oh, oh, to left center field. That's gone. A solo homer for Garrett Cooper, his eleventh. that could be tapped into in the future, that there is a path to them getting even better than they were last year when Cooper was more or less an average everyday player. And when Caleb, of course, had that amazing hot streak, and even when he regressed later in the year, uh, partially due to injury, if not mostly due to injury, that he was on pace to be a solid middle-of-the-rotation type of guy. And, I mean, this comes in light of the news that Michael King is now going to be on the Yankees opening day roster, he could have a long career ahead of them. But considering where they were at that time, where they really just needed need to fill places on the depth chart um, for that 2018 team, and now they played much bigger roles in 2019, both in line to play big in 2020, that's one that I am I just couldn't say enough praise about how they were able to identify those guys uh, based on things that didn't show up. They didn't have major league track record at the time at all when those trades were made and yet like turning them into something real. And I guess the jury is still out on that a little bit to see whether either of those guys still have a higher level that they can reach. But that's, that's one I'm super encouraged about. On a related note, we wanted to look at guys that haven't reached the major leagues yet, particular moves. These would be, I guess, the super recent moves, the ones where uh, they either gave up a substantial major league asset or whether it was with some of these recent draft picks the one, I guess, once again, I won't limit you to just one particular move, but if, if there's one in terms of one of these recently acquired prospects that they had that you feel most confident is going to be successful, someone that we haven't seen at the major league level yet, um, and that it doesn't necessarily have to be a guy that will come up this year, but ones that you feel were a steal, a great value that this team got and that you're especially high on. The beauty of the Marlins the last year is they've added so much young, and now I'm talking young, like teenager young, 
talent in the IFA, the International Free Agency, and through the draft, that you and I could spend a whole show on that. I'll choose one guy. I think Daxton Fulton is a first-round talent that they were able to get this year. Maybe some injury concerns and obviously a long ways away from ever pitching at Marlins Park. But that pick itself was was beautiful. That pick almost got me more excited and most of us more excited because we didn't think that Max Meyer was going to be the pick um, than Max. But that pick was fantastic. So I love that. You and I could talk for an hour and a half on the drafting and the international free agents. But mine is always still going to be my favorite guy. Again, I spoke about it with the crew from England or from the UK, but the acquisition of Lewin Diaz, I truly believe he will be a cornerstone first baseman for the Marlins. And you know where I'm, what I'm going to say next. This is the guy I identified two years ago that I wanted on the fish. I wanted him to be the Rule 5 draft pick. I wanted them to acquire him in the offseason. And then finally, on my honeymoon, they acquire him for Sergio Romo. He is, he is truly in my heart going to be a superstar at first base with significant pop and a good glove as well. Now, apparently Joe Fasaros, they're playing him in the outfield too, so some versatility. But Leyland's going to be a guy. Leyland's going to be a guy. And if there's one choice, that's, that's the choice. Yeah, I'm I'm totally on board with him too. Uh, just an incredible season that he had in the minors last year, and as you said, you picked him out even before this "quote unquote" return to like a high level of performance. He had that high prospect pedigree ever since he entered pro ball, and then his stock dipped so much in 2018. He had some struggles. He had some injuries. He had, I think, a season-ending wrist injury that year, and he was available for everybody. I mean, how often does it happen when you have a guy like this? that was unprotected in his first year of, of rule five eligibility and nobody got him. And now he can end up in this kind of situation. I, I hope we see him really soon because he's it's, it's a performance and it's the work ethic as well, because a big difference that made that really contributed to what he is right now as a player is what he did uh, with his physique and how he trimmed out a lot of bad weight, put on a lot of good weight, and that just allowed him to tap into that amazing skill that he has even a little bit more. But we have a full season here on deck for the Mar- – well, a full season. We have the, the, the entire season. It's not a full <laughs> but we have an entire season of baseball, an entire 60 games of us on deck that we've been waiting for for a while. And uh, I know you're going to be around to follow every moment of it. And, of course, we're going to be doing so here on Fish Stripes. And – uh on Friday, it all gets started in Philadelphia. Danny, we're going to have you back in the future, of course, and we're going to have our correspondence pretty much every single day on Twitter, I imagine, as this moves forward. And thank you for coming on the pod, brother. This was great. Absolutely, man. It was a pleasure. And we're going to have plenty of coverage coming for you this season uh, as it gets going uh, from me and from everybody else here on our Fish Stripes team. So until then... Uh, keep listening, guys. Uh, make sure you subscribe for all the latest episodes. Check out our other shows on the podcast channel, not just me. Earning Their Stripes is still going. Marlon's Barbecue is heating up with Red Garcia and Alex Contreras. So we appreciate all the support that you guys give us. And Marlon's Baseball is on deck. Go Fish. Go Fish.